Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that would dive in after British politics as it plummets towards rock bottom, but prefers to stand on the precipice shouting swear words at it while throwing in little bits of stale bread. This is episode 141. I'm Tian and Duyeb, and this week, as the Conservatives announce that they're not aiming to fight in the European elections, I wonder if that's like announcing you're not going to race in this stupid competition because it's for losers, while trying to distract everyone from seeing that you've brought a donkey to the start line and everyone else is in a Ferrari. In entertainment, the past weekend brought the Avengers fighting Thanos and the Stark family fighting the Night King, and politics too hasn't wanted to feel left out, as the Conservative Party continue to head towards what looks like a final season or at least a timely cancellation. Brexit continues to loom, with stakes up by a state visit from football bladder filled with Premier Donald Trump to contend with, the renewed threat of a Scottish independence referendum reappearing despite it supposedly dying in season three, all the while the battle with climate change grows in the background. Who will win? Who will survive? How long will it actually be? Because I'm really sure my bladder will die before then. And what snacks should I get? Sadly, unlike Marvel or Game of Thrones, this saga has very few heroes and is generally more of a universe where you mainly wish Thanos had decided to wipe everyone out. Conservative Party chairman and Gus in Disney's Cinderella, Brandon Lewis, has refused to say when the Conservatives' EU election campaign will start, saying they're hoping Parliament will reach a deal by May the 22nd so that the elections don't have to happen. Which means the Conservatives are going to start their campaign on May the 22nd, complain that everyone else has frustrated the process, and then ask if actually the elections can happen in October instead. There won't be a Brexit solution by May the 22nd because cross-party talks are going so well that Labour leader and personification of an old furniture shop, Jeremy Corbyn, has said that Prime Minister and walking beginner's guide to being a sociopath, Theresa May, just keeps insisting on the same crap that she always has because when May thinks outside the box, she's still inside another box that actually contains the first box and lots of little bits of paper telling her to look in the box. Meanwhile, the government say Labour are dragging their feet, though I'm amazed they're even moving that fast while watching the Tories potentially head towards destruction. If I was Labour, I'd have tied myself to a concrete boulder by now, and every time the Conservatives ask for my thoughts, I'd just point to it and awkwardly shrug a sorry. If Labour agree a deal with the Conservatives, then they're going to be electorally dead, aren't they? And if they don't, then the Conservatives are probably likely dead, but maybe also Labour, but maybe not. And either way, the UK is just floating in the Irish Sea like a giant that willingly walks into the waves after watching the news. 
Meanwhile, other parties have been announcing their manifestos for the European elections. Well, except for the human embodiment of an angry dog barking into a megaphone, Nigel Farage, and his Brexit party, who won't be announcing any policies until after the European elections. The latest opinion polls have the Brexit party on 28% share of the vote, same as Labour, meaning its supporters are exactly the sort of people who'd gamble everything they'd won for the mystery prize, even if it's already been revealed that that box is empty, save for the farty whiff of false promise. Oh, and a sad-looking cabbage. Which is also how best to describe one of the Brexit Party candidates, Anne Widdicombe, who's obviously been resurrected in order to appeal to any white walkers who might be voting. The racist, homophobic, anti-abortion hate mushroom, who dances like she's fighting wasps, is back and has left the Tories for Farage because, hey, the Conservatives already had Theresa May, so they didn't need two of those. Widdicombe is also quite famous for being celibate her entire life, so it should come as no surprise that she's excited about jumping into bed with a loudmouth who drinks too much, as that's the mistake most people get out of the way in their teenage years. Saying that, maybe she's been saving herself all of this time just to fuck the Tories. While Widdicombe is the most well-known Brexit Party candidate, she's not the most concerning, with woman who looks like she grew up on the set of Grange Hill, Claire Fox, a genocide-denying Irish Republican militant-supporting Gary Glitter-endorsing Yes post-child abuse era, also running as an MEP candidate. It's like a political rogues gallery, a collection of misfits too extreme to find a home anywhere else, so Farage has taken them under his right wing. How they'll all work together despite many opposing views is yet to be seen, but that sort of forward thinking is exactly what you wouldn't expect from the Brexit Party, and if they're really true to their name, it's unlikely they'll have got much of a campaign beyond a logo and blaming other people for everything they don't like. Farage said that he hasn't come out of semi-retirement to muck about, which makes you wonder which bit was retirement. The being on TV all the time? Was that it? The being on the radio all the time? Was that retirement? I mean, if only he'd chosen to spend it going to the Algarve and telling people he shouldn't have been allowed to get there, that would have been much better. The only way you can really retire a semi-Farage is by being a full-on raging cock all of the time, or floppy impotency. I really, really hope he suffers the latter, political or otherwise. Meanwhile, the political version of a suburban estate agent, Change UK, a.k.a. the party formerly known as the Independent Group, also announced their candidates, which included cheap costume of a glam rock singer, but, you know, once they've retired and now into gardening, Rachel Johnson. Of the family Johnson, because with Rhys Mogg's sister in the Brexit party, it seems you can't start a new political group without having the female sibling of a hateful conservative cartoon character involved somehow. Rachel had previously rebelled against her brothers by leaving the Conservatives for the Liberal Democrats, but it seems she was lured in by the party who aren't even sure what their name is and have a logo that looks like a barcode or template for a flag no one can be bothered to finish. I mean, that is a tough choice. Political has-beens with nothing going for them following an ideology that has long since been rejected by the public or the Liberal Democrats. Other Change UK candidates include former Newsnight presenter Gavin Esler and Crispin Hunt, former lead singer of The Long Pigs, because it's very important for your party to have the appeal of a weak episode of Sunday Brunch. Meanwhile, two other candidates have stepped down due to racist social media posts about black women and Romanians that emerged very quickly after they were announced as MEP candidates. While it looks like a third will have to go because of Islamophobic and far-right supporting posts. Once again, it seems the Change UK members left their respected original parties because of issues with racism within them, mainly because it wasn't the right type of racism after all. If only Labour had quit the anti-Semitism and aimed some of that bile at Eastern Europeans or Muslims, then who knows which uninspiring MPs it could have kept, eh? <laughs> what a shame. While Labour haven't had the same embarrassment with EU election candidates yet, presumably because all their politicians that did embarrassing or offensive social media posts ended up as MPs, they are having to redraft their election leaflets after they failed to mention that second referendum that they've pledged. Ah, oh, silly Labour. If only they'd not mentioned any policies at all, they'd probably be doing much better in the polls. 
Environmental campaigner Greta Thunberg met MPs in Westminster, telling them that they did not act in time. I mean, that's pretty much an evergreen statement for British Parliament applicable at any point over the last all of the years. She told them that their support for fossil fuels and airport expansion is beyond absurd, a statement listened to by all party leaders except Theresa May, who is absent, probably because she doesn't actually believe young people exist. So what's the point? I mean, she was definitely never one, was she? Pretty sure she was born at the age of 45. The right-wing press took its task to insult Thunberg, probably because she's everything that threatens them. She's young, female, disabled and from a European country. If she'd also been Muslim and at some point muttered under her breath that Princess Diana was overrated, they'd probably have exploded in a mushroom cloud of cry-wanking. I'm assuming they also think she's an easy target, but based on my limited ill-informed knowledge, being Swedish and autistic means actually she'll soon be solving a series of very tricksy murders near the Öresund Bridge at some point soon. It's amazing how David Attenborough doesn't receive the same level of vitriol for his environmental stance, and you may say that's because he's a rich, older white man, but I think it's because everyone's aware that we're going to need him to narrate the end of everything. As you can see, there's nothing but fire for miles around. And oh, there in the distance, a 40-foot-high cockroach devouring what looks to be the remains of a delivery driver. Since Thunberg's visit and the Extinction Rebellion campaigns, the SNP have declared a climate emergency, while Labour have put in a motion to declare a national climate emergency, even though their councillors in Cumbria recently backed the go-ahead of a new deep coal mine, the first in 30 years. Hey, maybe we're all getting it wrong and that deep mine is to put coal into, not take out, and then maybe just ignore it or use it like a really uncomfortable dirty ball pit and instead build a hydro generator. No? No? Ah, well, still, it's all more positive than before, and the UK's fracking SAR has quit her role after six months, saying that the government are pandering to activists rather than science, evidence and a desire to see a UK industry flourish. Yeah, I mean, what they should have done was paid attention to all that science that shows earthquakes have been recorded in non-earthquake-prone areas after fracking, and it's also affected drinking water, and over 150 studies say the chemicals released may affect human fertility, and then it could have just saved loads of money and not hired a fracking SAR in the first place. Yes, I am using that as a swear. Fracking really doesn't suit the Tories anyway, as they usually prefer not to unearth anything that could be damaging to them and keep it buried for as long as possible. If all that wasn't enough, US President Donald Trump has announced that he will be making a state visit to the UK in June, and protests have already been announced, even though I think it'd be much funnier for us all to just hide and he'd be greeted by May or by herself like she's the ghost of Christmas future. Either that or get the entire population of the UK to head to the US and spend a weekend helping get Mexicans across the border and scuffing up Mar-a-Lago while he's away just to annoy him. It's been rumoured that Trump is going to dine with sentient Portaloo Boris Johnson during his visit to the UK, and I have a feeling it's less out of friendship and more because Trump reckoned he could save money on a body double if there's any assassination attempts. Obviously, I wouldn't condone it if there was, but if there was, honestly, we really don't mind which one you hit. Farage may also be invited, which is a great idea of trying to lose weight, as sitting opposite that face would put you off most things. Liberal Democrat leader and former Gringotts bank worker Vince Cable announced that he would not be attending any state banquet for Trump as he said we should not be beguiled by pomp and circumstance into hobnobbing with a man who's on record as a misogynist and racist, though he did say that while sitting on a question time panel with actor Jonathan Rhys Davis. Jeremy Corbyn is also snubbing any state banquet, though many were keen to point out that he did sit down with the IRA Hamas and Hezbollah, so he obviously has hypocritical standards. To be fair, though, he did do that under the pretense of peace, whereas Trump is only really over to give America a slight breather for a few days, like you might a parent with an overactive one-year-old. Speaker and Wind in the Willows extra John Burkow also said he wouldn't be attending, though that'll make it tricky if anyone wants food, as he won't be there to shout order. 
All of this comes as the US has just threatened to veto the UN resolution on classifying rape as a weapon of war, which is really horrific, though probably happening because based on the last few years, they think it should be classed as a campaign tool for US elections. At the spring SNP conference, party leader and amalgamation of Guess Who characters, Nicola Sturgeon, said that she wants to hold a second Scottish independence referendum by 2021 if Brexit goes through. May I suggest a yes campaign that simply reuses all the old Better Together leaflets but with ha 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 written all over them. In other news, wanker Damien Green has suggested that over 50s have to pay an extra £300 a year in tax for social care because it seems his party haven't driven away enough of their core supporters already. I feel like the Conservative conference will involve Jeremy Hunt just lobbing glass bottles into the crowd until everyone goes before the Cabinet will sit on the stage drinking Alcopops while listening to Nirvana. The UK has agreed to allow Chinese company Huawei access to help build a countrywide 5G network, but other countries have raised security risks due to the firm's connections with the Chinese government. Given that the details of the National Security Council meeting with Huawei were linked to the press, the phone company won't really have to bother as MPs will just sell off all the data before they get the chance anyway. And in Spain, the socialists have won their third election in four years, but haven't secured a majority, so will have to form a coalition, which makes sense for a social democracy to want to allow others to have a say in regulation. The Conservative Popular Party uh, no longer are, losing 137 seats from the last election, and far-right group Vox won seats for the first time, probably on account of all the pops they got. Leader of the Socialist Party and man who looks like he's about to do a terrible audition on X Factor, Pedro Sanchez, said that the future has won and the past has lost, which is, to be fair, usually how time works. Oh, and lastly, in a poll by Conservative Home, Theresa May is now even more unpopular in her own party than Transport Secretary and genetic afterthought Chris Grayling. Yes, he's even managed to fail at being the worst. Watch your pod chums, how's things? Uh, this week's podcast arrives amidst a nerd cloud where I've managed to cram in the new Avengers film, which I'm not going to give any spoilers for, but at three hours long, my bladder definitely didn't survive. And the big Game of Thrones battle of Winterfell against the Night King, who'd probably win in the modern age just by being regularly featured on news programmes for balance. I'm a big fan of escapism at the moment, though I have to sort of not think about my choice of escapism too much, otherwise it's not really escapism enough, do you know what I mean? Like, Game of Thrones currently involves all the leaders coming together to fight both an ancient destructive white army and a queen who won't listen to anyone and insists on carrying out her awful reign. Um, Yeah, I mean, really, maybe the only way through Brexit is with the use of dragons, although the Brexit party now have Anne Widdicombe, so I'm not sure if that counts. Then Avengers, obviously, is about a rich arms dealer and his pals who realise they've not managed to prevent an awful event, so they try to go back in time to stop it, even though that may or may not be the will of the people. I mean, in the film it is, but Thanos would probably argue that as 50% of the people have now gone, you can't really account for the full will of the people, and so it doesn't matter and there won't be a second referendum. OK, maybe to relax, I really need to find something else to do with my occasional spare time. Yeah, you're right. But hey, fit this show in, I did, in between all that and uh, the last Frankie Boyle gig that I did this evening, which always seems to have happened on a Monday. Damn you, everything is against this podcast. But thank you for being there, wherever you are. Um, I mean, unless you're somewhere you shouldn't be. Though I might still thank you for that, sort of depending. I mean, maybe it's better you're there than somewhere else. I mean, how else do they know to write those danger signs, you know, unless someone tried it out. But wherever you are, thank you very much for listening to this show. And thank you this week also to Scotty and to Emma, who donated to the Kofi, which is, as always, very appreciated 
appreciated. Um, and if you too, like those two, would like to donate to the Kofi or Patreon too, then please do that at Kofi, ko-fi.com uh, forward slash bro or patreon.com forward slash bro. Um, no, sorry, I've sort of run out of the sort of two rhyme. That was nice while it lasted, wasn't it? There, a lot of twos in there. I thought it would sort of link up and be uh, nice on the ears. I mean, that is the sort of content you'd be donating for. Have I put you off? I've probably put you off, haven't I? How about if you donate, I'll never do that again. Yep, that's better. Um, if you can't donate, please give the show a review instead. And I realised recently that me banging on about how this show is close to 150 reviews on iTunes, it's only that on UK iTunes. So if you check it in another country, you'll notice in, say, Germany, that there's only two reviews, and you'll probably think I'm a liar. Um, Danke schön for those two reviews. But I mean, only zwei? Come on, is this punishment for Brexit? Not fair, Freunds, not fair. But look, I don't care which country you review it in. Please do put some nice words somewhere to encourage others to waste their time on it. Oh, and if you don't want to do any of those things, then please just a tweet or a Facebook or a note shaved into your pet for when you walk them in public areas. Something to spread the word. Thank you. Admin this week. I'm off to MacFest uh, at the end of this week uh, in McEnlith. Um, I've probably said that wrong again every week. Uh, and when I'm there, I'll say it wrong again. And then I'll make the same joke I, I do about how there's only two streets to the whole town and I always have to resist trying to buy an antique barrel. Same same guy I do every year. If you go, you'll hear it. Um, my work in progress show is on Saturday, May the 4th. Yeah, Star Wars Day at 2pm. And tickets are £7.50. Um, even though I've called it Tin and Dio takes up an hour of your life that you'll never get back. I'm so good at the marketing huh do you know what i mean um if you're around that way please do come along uh the link for tickets is in the pod blurb or you can find more details at maccomedyfest.co.uk and because i'm at that festival all weekend from thursday i'm not sure if there'll be an interview next week as no one seems to be able to chat in the limited times i'm around and every single time i go to mccunlith my phone doesn't work um wi-fi seems to run on some sort of hamster wheel generator they've really cut themselves off from the world and that's why everyone seems happy so it does make sense um but look we'll see what happens and I will try to sort something out but it's tricky to arrange a 40 minute interview when there's literally no time to fit it in Um, there may also be a week later in May uh, EU elections week as it turns out where there might not be an episode due to some work that I might have to do instead but hey um, it'll be for the best uh, if it's only be about EU elections anyway and then they happen before the podcast has been out so look we'll see what happens but apologies in advance if those things do happen and I'll try and work out releasing something so your lives aren't too empty see what I've done there I've apologised lots for something that may actually not happen at all what a waste of your lives and my lives and if you come to MacFest I'll do that for an hour pretty good look at that see spun it all round like a goddamn maverick um, on this week's show I am chatting to journalist Sean Norris about why people be hating on Greta Thunberg plus don't get too excited there's a little look at the riveting new social care proposals because that's the sort of exciting show that I like to have and there's no Brexit fallout this week none at all which yes if my sci-fi fantasy binge this weekend tells me anything it'll likely be back with a vengeance next week only sadly stronger than before oh joy <laughs> The internet is often like a stroll in the woods. I mean, for a while, it's all lovely nature, trees, flowers, fresh air, the occasional squirrel, and then you'll accidentally stray off the footpath and notice, oh dear, is that a human shit? Before noticing the entire path ahead of you is all turds, with people shouting at you that it's your fault that they shat there and maybe you should deal with it. Over the past week, one of the internet's biggest paths of steaming horror took the shape of a cavalcade of entitled male opinion columnists criticising and insulting Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish girl who's concerned about the future of the planet, leading her to start the climate school strikes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, she's fair game. I mean, what idiot cares about the planet we all live on and need the air and food from and will entirely die without? And yeah, it's about time someone stuck it to those young people who have to deal with all the turds we've laid. Well, hopefully you're not thinking that as well. It doesn't really make any 
sense and why would you like this show? None of these articles made sense either, with some of them referring to her autism as weird, saying that she was a shill for climate campaigners, and that because she's only 16, she clearly has no idea what she's doing. This in many of the same publications that accused Shemima Begum of knowing exactly what she was doing when running off to join ISIS at 15. So which is it then? Are teenagers fully capable of their own thoughts or not? And while you're at it, how do immigrants both take all the jobs and all the benefits? How are the EU unelected and undemocratic, but apparently you must also vote for the Brexit party in order to make a difference in an EU election? I mean, hey, I doubt any of those questions will ever get answered, but while I'm certain it's just the voice of the threatened blurting out their fears that they're being made irrelevant by a more interesting world, I still find it hard to understand why on earth you'd bother, and why it's happening with increasing frequency in the press. And anyway, we all know that the only credible way of attacking teenagers is actually by pointing out that they'll turn out like you eventually, before insisting you find all the things they like really, really cool, and maybe you'll check them out too. I've had a lot of climate change chat on this podcast because, well, it's important and terrifying. But this week I thought it'd be more interesting to talk to someone about why certain voices, particularly those of female activists, are so viciously attacked. So this week I spoke to Sean Norris, writer and journalist on many aspects of contemporary feminism and politics, and asked her why anyone would think it's big and clever to criticise a 16-year-old when she hasn't even been playing shit music from her phone on the bus. Because, yes, we all know that's fair game if you're brave enough to confront it. This led us to discuss the funding of anti-feminist publications, the rise of anti-feminism in the US and much, much more. And let me tell you, it was bloody fascinating. So I hope you enjoy. And here is Sean. So in the past week, there's been quite a lot of online uh, anger and vitriol from right wing commentators against Greta Thunberg, which I've sort of found quite upsetting. I think quite a lot of people have. Um, Is it just sort of clickbait trolling that this is happening, that they're targeting a 16 year old who essentially wants to save the planet? You think a lot of people be on side with that. Um, Or is this sort of an example of like deeper sexism that's prevalent uh, amongst a lot of right wing opinion writers? I think it's a mixture of both. I think. You know, obviously there are some writers who they can just sort of knock off an article that's very clickbaity and says lots of things that will immediately get people offended. And we should be offended because, you know, there's been a lot of the comment that I've seen from the right about Greta Thunberg has sort of talked about her as a, in these very derogatory terms, like as a weirdo and monotone. And these are things that are potentially reflective of her having Asperger's. And so you've got this very ableist rhetoric going on. I also think it's interesting, I was just looking at um, an article in Spiked magazine, which very much sort of emphasised the way that she delivers her speeches. And I think we've got this real problem still that our idea of a good speech maker is very much based on a kind of male way of delivery. So women are still considered to have their voices are too high, they're shrill, they're not orators. The great speech makers are you know, male and deep voiced and have a very specific way of delivering their content. And, and obviously a 16 year old girl is not going to match that ideal of oratory, even though in my opinion, the way that she talks, her incredible articulate statements, the fact that she is so persuasive, so intelligent, that she really knows her stuff. You know, we should be like totally in awe of the way that she's addressing politicians in the UN and, and, the nation. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing, you know, it's in her second language. Which yeah. I, know, I know a lot of Swedish people I meet speak English probably better than a lot of English people, but still, like, it was sort of ignored by she's making this speech to British politicians in her second language. That's, yeah. That's pretty amazing. It's really <laughs> impressive. And, you know, I think there's this real sort of sneeriness coming from certain sectors of the right wing press. I mean, there's even today, there's an, an article in the Sunday Times. So, 
I mean, obviously we're recording this on Sunday, but on when this goes live, it'll be a couple of days old. Um, you know, and Rod Liddell, who unsurprisingly has written a piece about her. And again, really going on this kind of, she's weird. He calls her that, that weird Swedish girl. It's really derogatory language. I think, you know, obviously in sections of the right-wing press, there's a very determined, determined need to deny the impact of climate change, to kind of promote this idea that actually the impact of industrialization, um, the impact of capitalism has been really positive for the planet. And obviously there are arguments to be made about getting people into cities and, and the sort of changes in, in global poverty. But, um, you know, it's, it's very obvious that, that this is happening. We, we're seeing more and more extreme weather situations. We're seeing more and more of the impact of climate change. It's the poorest and most vulnerable people in society who are going to be overly impacted and impacted first by the impact uh, by climate change and so I think they found a really easy target in this young girl because they can just mock her and undermine her and pretend that she's just a silly teenager who doesn't know what she's talking about rather than actually address what she's saying and I think you know a lot of these writers they have potentially been critical of some of the men who speak out on climate change you know they've They've written a couple of things about David Attenborough, but not with this vitriol and not with these very sneering, sexist, kind of mocking tone that they've used against Greta Thunberg. And I think that is where we are really seeing that sexism. And it kind of reminds me a bit of um, what happened with Malala. Like, you know, there was articles coming out when she sort of became very vocal after she'd recovered from being shot saying like, oh, why doesn't she just go away? Why doesn't she just shut up? It's like, that's that's the hill you're going to die on? A woman, a, a child that's been shot in the head is the, is who you're going to target? Like, you know, it's sort of, there is this very much this anger about young women speaking up and speaking out and using their voice to promote change. And you see that as a feminist activist. And I think you're definitely seeing that now with climate change activism. Sure. I mean, uh, 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 forgive me if this is a sort of slight detour, but is it similar? I mean, the, all the Shemima Begum stuff, which I know obviously she wasn't yeah. speaking out for a, an issue. A, a lot of the anger seemed to be she was a teenage girl. She knew what she was doing. And you think, well, actually, the fact that she was a teenage girl probably meant she didn't know. And it, it meant that she was definitely groomed. You know, and that was a, sort of the, the blame was put on her, despite her not being of an age where we should be blaming people for something. But it felt of a similar kind of sexist level of you know well it's a young girl she should she should be more responsible I think that the the way the press responded to that case was very again very much focusing on on her femaleness and the fact that she was a girl and you know there hasn't been the same reaction to ISIS fighters who are male returning to the UK and I think you know there, I mean I'm not I think I obviously think what she's done is horrendous. And, you know, I think the more and more stuff that's coming out about how women who went over to Syria have behaved, you know, the, the harder it is to kind of even understand what goes through someone's mind to, to, to get there. But that doesn't detract from the fact that she should be treated in as a citizen. She's entitled to legal representation. She's entitled to the same legal protections as any other man or woman. And there was this very much this sense of a kind of sneery, you know, A, that she was a stupid teenage girl, but B, that she reneged any sense of being a teenage girl, that she wasn't really allowed to 
that there wasn't an, a discussion about whether she'd been groomed or whether she'd been, you know, influenced by more powerful patriarchal figures. So, but I guess it's kind of, I mean, I'm trying to argue, I guess, that, you know, Greta Thunberg does know what she's doing and does know what she's saying at the age of 16. And perhaps that contradicts saying that Shamima doesn't, didn't know what she was doing. Like, well, and also very different, very different cases. With you know, obviously, uh, it was probably wrong of me to sort of um, compare the two, but it, it just felt like there's a very similar attitude. And as soon as it's a young woman, either either she's too stupid to know what she's doing, or she isn't, uh, or you know, it it seems to depend on what story they want to push. But yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely. In, in their hands rather than in you know. In, I mean, in, if you in look each individual case, if you look at the Brendan O'Neill piece in Spiked about um, Greta Thunberg, where he call, he talks about the cult of Greta Thunberg and I mean first of all he does these kind of very derogatory comments about her appearance and her delivery and um he sort of says that she's like some kind of pre-modern puritanical preacher in in early years America it's weird um but then he, he goes on to say that she's totally you know she's a patsy of the climate change protesters and that she's being and she's kind of being influenced by adults and by I mean he he makes this argument you know that these are kind of posh elite people who want her to go and stand up and and it's like okay so so you you refuse to believe that a 16 year old could come to a decision by herself could have a political conscience could could actually care about an issue that's impacting on her life and it doesn't bear relation to her own testimony about how she got interested in climate change and why she wanted to take these actions so again it's this kind of like refusal it's this anger at women and girls speaking up and then in order to kind of deal with that anger, saying, oh, well, they're just stupid, they don't know what they're talking about, they're just being influenced by adults, you know, actually we should feel bad for her because she's being put on this stage. And and it's like, well, no. I mean, I was remember when I was 16, I was, you know, probably a bit of an idiot, but I still had political opinions, not necessarily right ones. But, you know, <laughs> Yeah, but a sixty-year-old is very sweet. I mean, no, we, we we've uh, only recently had the discussion about sixty-year-olds getting the vote, and it's still a constant discussion. And you know, uh, children. I and I, I work with or I have worked with kids. Kids know what they're doing from the age of sort of eight. <laughs> I know kids are far yeah, more yeah. switched on than a lot yeah. of adults. Um, but but it's very interesting. You, you've mentioned spiked a couple of times, and and spiked is a um, it's something I wasn't even really aware of until I uh, sort of joined Twitter some years ago. Um, and and a lot of friends of mine who aren't really uh, social media uh, savvy I suppose don't really know of Spike but Spike's a very sort of very right wing kind of online magazine isn't it and I know you've written extensively on on New Mavens um, about how Spike kind of demeaned feminism and uh, Mm. you sort of put that down to US right wing backing is that is is, you know what's their intention for doing this and is this a Spike responsible to similar attitudes that have since come from other commentators and publications or is that you know, uh, an indication of what's happening in the States. Why why are we seeming to see this more and more at the moment? So I'm not sure if Spikes would describe themselves as a right-wing publication. I mean, they, they sort of come from, I mean, I don't know a huge amount of the history, but they, they come from this sort of Marxist background, which is very strange when you read what they publish now. But I guess I'm kind of, I mean, I see them as being right-wing, but I'm not sure if that's how they describe themselves. And I think they sort of see themselves more as a libertarian, anything goes. They're very much on this kind of, you know, the left are threatening free speech and, and you know, this whole kind of thing about trigger 
trigger warning culture and snowflake culture. They're, they're, they, they write a lot about how you can't say anything anymore. You can't say gay people are weird anymore. You can't, you can't, it's just like, so they're, they're very much a sort of free speech libertarian approach to, to politics and, and society. Um, in terms of, I wrote, I had a look at a lot of the articles they wrote between, oh, let me try and remember the dates. I think it was the 31st of August, 2018 and the 10th of January, 2019, and looked at all of the articles that were tagged as feminism on the website, which was fun. You know, it was a really great afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Oh, God. (laughs) I hope you did something really fun afterwards. Yeah. (laughs) So I think, you know, they're very much in the camp that that feminism is is bad for women like feminism treats women as victims it makes out that women you know are constant it you know I, I mean I hate using the word snowflake but that's kind of their word so like feminism makes women into precious snowflakes who can't cope with a rough and tumble of for example political life and and that feminists want men and women to be treated differently um because women can't uh, are too weak to cope and their angle is like women aren't, I mean, first of all, that's a total misrepresentation of feminism. Feminism does not treat women as victims. It does not see women as too weak to cope with the rough and tumble of political life. You know, it's 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 about, you know, changing the structures that victimise women, which is a very different thing. Um, and I think, you know, it's a very easy, the, the fact is women are victims of sexism and we are victims of male violence and we are victims of an unequal patriarchal system that's, that disadvantages women and we have to fight back against that. So one of the, the big aspects of their coverage of feminism last year really focused on the Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court judge position. Um, and I'm sure your listeners will remember that in this case, Brett Kavanaugh was Trump's nomination to be a Supreme Court judge, and he's got very right-wing views on LGBT rights. He's very anti-choice, so he, he kind of fits into that, you know, the the Trump style of politics at the moment. And then he was accused of sexually assaulting Professor Christine Blasey Ford when they were both teenagers, and she came forward and gave testimony at um, the kind of hearings to decide whether he was the right man for the job. <clears throat> Sorry. So these went this wasn't a trial, it wasn't a court case. It was like a glorified job interview um where they have lots of different people come and testify as to whether Brett Kavanaugh is a suitable Supreme Court judge. And that's a lifelong position, you know, once you're on the Supreme Court, you're there forever. And this is why Ruth Bader Ginsburg cannot die. She has to become immortal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so spikes were very they felt that that the, the hearings were, were were quite farcical. They wrote that Christine Blasey Ford's testimony was evidence free, that that it was an attack on due process, that it undermined the real victims of sexual assault. Obviously they were very careful not to say that, you know, she was lying or that, that they were not real allegations, but they were very critical about the process and about the way feminists supported Christine Blasey Ford and about how how it was sort of seen as a trial, even though it wasn't a trial. And I think the thing that really got to me the most when I was reading all this coverage that they did was, was this idea that her testimony was evidence-free because testimony is evidence. Like, his evidence 
is te- his testimony is counted as evidence. So her testimony should be counted as evidence. And then there was this real sense that what women say isn't doesn't matter. Like if you if you treat women's te- testimony as evidence free, it's you're you're saying that that their voice, their experience, their their words in a court or in a hearing are, are worth less than a, ma- a man's evidence. So it was really troubling to see that kind of you know for some for an article and for writers that were so obsessed with due process they seem really willing to kind of ignore that they that due process was being followed and that a woman's testimony should be counted as evidence so the other thing that kind of links back to what we were saying before about Greta Thunberg and Spiked is that um last year George Monbiot uh, the UK journalist uncovered that they were being partly funded by the Koch brothers, the Koch brothers, which is a kind of billionaire disaster capitalists. And they fund, or they have given donations to the spiked US version or company. I'm not quite sure what, what the term would be. Um, and they're very invested in, in climate change denial. And they, they give a lot of money to other organisations that um deny climate change and uh, anti-choice and anti-LGBT rights. Um, and again, they kind of come at it from this position of being very libertarian, like free speech, you should, that, that the left is attacking people's freedom to say what they like. And But actually, when you come down to it, whenever you see these kind of right-wing defences of freedom of speech, they're not interested in defending a woman's right to come forward with allegations of sexual assault. They're not interested in women coming forward to demand their right to choose. Are they spiked her a pro-choice organization? Um, you know, they're not interested in gay people coming out and speaking out about their right to marry and their love for each other. Their idea of freedom of speech is, is privileged white supremacist people denigrating minority groups. And that's not freedom of speech at all. So it's a very one-way street. Sure. I mean, it's, yeah, it often seems to be the case that they want freedom of their particular speech and not really anyone else's. Uh, and similarly, sort of get very upset with people getting triggered by their jokes, but then get very upset if you insult them. That sort of always. Oh my uh, God. I mean, you know. it's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's just, I mean, Brett Easton Alice right now. It's just like, you're the one that seems really upset by everything. And he's written a book. I mean, he's so angry. He's written a, a book about it. It's about people. He's like, I don't care. I don't care. But I'm going to write a book about how much I care. Yeah. But I don't care. <laughs> it's 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 really amazing. Um, and is it? I mean, this sort of influence from the the Coke brother, whichever way you pronounce it, doesn't sound good for them. It sort of sums them up very well. Um, but the uh, the Coke brothers, they that that sort of influence that's coming from a kind of. US, well, you said libertarian, but also very sort of right wing. You know, the US seems to be a yeah. kind of hub of anti feminism right now. And is that where a lot of this kind of attitude is coming from? Is, is the US and the Trump administration kind of the greatest threat to equality and feminism right now? Um, you know, because I know we're not great at it in the UK either. Um, but is, is that where things are being pushed from? I think there's a, a very global rise of right-wing anti-feminist anti-lgbt movements that obviously again have a massive impact on racial equality as well um i mean you're seeing it in the states you're seeing it to a degree here i do, there is definitely a rise of the far right here and there is a link between that rise and anti-abortion and anti-lgbt rhetoric but it's not quite as blatant it's not quite as out in the open that doesn't mean it's not going to be seen but right now it's sort of 
you know, the rise of the right is much more focused on things like Brexit rather than attacks on, on women's rights in the open. What goes on in the sort of online groups is, is a different case. Um, and also, you know, Bolsonaro, a massive rise in, of, of right-wing rhetoric in Eastern Europe with Orban and the Law and Justice Party in Poland and, and in Italy. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely a global trend that we're seeing and a lot and whenever there's a rise in in far-right activism and rhetoric you definitely see women and lgbt people and minority groups as the kind of canary in the coal mine so it's very easy like it seems like that's the kind of first line of 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 attack a lot of the time particularly just going back to um the us i mean one of the things i really remember when trump came to power was so under George Bush, there was a, a law that meant federal funds and for international aid would not go to any organizations in the global south that provided abortion services. So if you were a sexual and reproductive health clinic in, I don't know, Malawi, um, and you were getting federal aid, if you even provided advice on abortion, you didn't even have to provide abortions, then then you, would, you wouldn't be allowed to have funding. And it was one of the first things Obama repealed when he became president. And it was the first thing Trump brought back in when he became president. And some people say that this is really common and it's, it's a law that kind of just seems to to and fro between Democrat and Republican presidents. But, but it was very, there was a, a really famous photo of him signing that law just surrounded by men. There were no women in the room. And I think the impact of stuff like that, we're now seeing last week, um, the US trying to block a UN resolution on rape as a weapon of war because, again, it provided, it had wording in it about providing support for sexual and reproductive health organisations. And so, you know, when you see things like that, you do really get this sense that it's a huge threat to global equality and global feminism. You know, and I mean, there's a huge assault on abortion rights in America going on. It's, a, it's there's, we keep hearing about these bills like the heartbeat bill in Ohio that basically mean that women will not be able to get abortions if those bills come through. We've got a very right-wing anti-choice Supreme Court, and that was what was so worrying about Brett Kavanaugh's um, appointment because, you know, he's he's come out with very anti-choice rhetoric. And Mike Pence is incredibly anti-choice, and we it was great seeing, um, what's his name, the Taoiseach, Leo Varadka, take his boyfriend to meet Mike Pence. I mean, that was great. But, you know, these, these are people that have had very extreme views and that are very powerful. So a piece of work that I've been work was looking at um, for Open Democracy, Open Democracy 5050, was this piece of research that's just been published that saw how certain men online men's rights groups became radicalised in the run up to the 2016 election, and ra- and while previously these particular groups had really focused their kind of I'm saying activism with inverted quotes. <laughs> like, <laughs> they focus their activism on on very much like a personal level, personal empowerment. There's a whole thing in the kind of men's rights communities where you have to make yourself a better man. You need to go from a beta male to an alpha male, and you do that by physical exercise and by sexual conquest and and by sharing in these spaces where you you know write horrible things about women and degrade women. But it was it was apolitical in terms of support for political parties so there was a sense that you didn't get involved with mainstream politics you didn't campaign politically for change it was all focused on this on your individual self-improvement and that changed in a run-up to the trump election and they 
the forum started very much pushing the idea that Trump was was the, the man who was going to end the so-called war on men, um, that they had to get Trump into the White House, that they, were gonna, they had to go out and vote for Trump because he was the ultimate alpha male and he was going to stop the feminization of American politics. He was going to stop the kind of lefty liberal. I mean, God, America's hardly lefty liberal. You know, like, <laughs> and it's not got a, a right wing parliament, but um, government. And so, you know, you can really see actually that that there was this upsurge in misogynistic support for Trump and that he exemplified the ideas of this very extreme misogynistic community that they saw in him, you know, the person who would do their job, who would represent them on the world stage. And I wrote at the time of um, Trump's election, and it was, it was quite funny because um, I wrote an article the day before about how the election campaign had normalized misogyny in in political spaces. And then I wrote it, obviously in the end, Hillary won, and but we should still be really vigilant to this kind of thing. And I, I had to get up at like five in the morning and rewrite oh, it. No. <laughs> it was so oh, bad. God. <laughs> I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. But it's, I think it's re- remained really true. His, his space, his attitudes towards women, his actions towards women, the way that he would get his crowds to chant things about Hillary Clinton, like lock her up, that his supporters would wear T-shirts that said, and I'm sure I'm allowed to say this, but um, like Hillary sucks, but not like Monica, um, you know, like kill the bitch merchandise. Like, you know, that became the norm in that campaign and that hasn't gone away. And as soon as you allow that to happen, it becomes very easy to start chipping away at women's rights and chipping away at abortion rights and chipping away at LGBT rights because you've, you've promoted yourself as the person who's going to, I mean, he didn't actively promote himself as the person who's going to end the so-called war on men, but his supporters gave him that role and expect him to follow that through. And I guess also it's sort of when you sort of put it like that as well, I think it's uh, because I think especially over or in the UK, you know, we were seeing all these allegations of, of, of sexual harassment, sexual abuse that, that Trump had done, um, you know, from yeah. his past. And you're sort of watching those come out going, how is this man still running? And how is this man still president once he got in, you know, with, with that many allegations against him? But uh, when you sort of put it like that, that obviously just galvanized his support. Yeah, there was um, a forum on Reddit. So one of the the Red Pill Forum titles was like, why the sexual harassment allegations are the reason I'm going to vote for Trump. Like, that was seen as a good thing. You know, it it meant that they were, we, you know, we were taking for these for these subgroups and these these um, communities. It's it's seen as taking control back from women. You know, women are walking around, not letting you touch them up, not letting you harass them, and. And now we can, because our man in the White House can. And a lot of people saying, you know, oh, I bet those women wanted it anyway. They were probably throwing themselves at him. So, you know, again, that kind of really basic women lie sexism, which goes back to the Christine Blasey Ford issue, where the Republicans were very, very careful not to say that she lied. They said that she might have got the wrong man or was a bit mixed up or couldn't remember things properly. They never said she lied. But Trump's supporters said that she lied. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we'll be back with Sean in a minute, but first... I've mentioned on this podcast before, several billion times, or around about that much, how social care is currently suffering a massive funding gap, with the government not really doing all that much about it. None of which is a surprise. I mean, we have a Prime Minister who struggles with acknowledging the public, unless it's to tell them they have to back a deal that no one likes and that they can't actually back, because it's up to Parliament, so it doesn't really matter if they do anyway. So why on earth would May want to make sure that those people are cared for, when she mostly appears to be upset that she's not the only person left on the planet? Social care in England, and this is just about England as it's a devolved issue in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, they do their own thing depending on allocated funding, or in the case of the DUP, bribery money. In England, it covers social work, personal care and support and protection services to adults and children in need. And while children's social care is also experiencing cuts and may soon suffer more as one in four councils are planning to do so in order to make ends meet, for now, let's do as the government do and completely ignore the young people. Adult social care has a funding gap for loads of reasons, several of which will come down to the government cutting money available to councils who can't then pay for it. But then there's also the fact that people just keep getting older and not dying. Selfish bastards. And the amount of over 85-year-olds is set to double over the next 20 years, depending on Brexit, obviously, and if we have to eat them for survival or not. With more over 85s, you have more people relying on social care, and so somehow it's got to do all that extra work without having any extra money to do so. And so, riding in to save the day like a knight in armour with weird stains on it is former Cabinet Minister Damien Green, who's published a report with the Conservative think tank Centre of Policy Studies, with suggestions of what should be done. And these suggestions? Yes, they all come down to older people paying more for being alive. The report suggests there should be a flat rate universal care entitlement that people then supplement with their own funds if they need to through annual payments of 10, 20 or 30,000 pounds a year. Yes, it doesn't sound too dissimilar to the much hated dementia tax the Conservatives announced in 2017. That, and I'm summarising here, basically said if you have assets of over 100 grand and you get ill, pay your money to deal with that as you're not going to remember it anyway. May did have to U-turn on the dementia tax after it turned out that pretty much targeted every single Conservative voter ever. So it's surprising that other suggestions in the report were mainly taxing the winter fuel allowance and that the over 50s might have to pay a national insurance surcharge as a last resort. 
And look, hey, some of this makes sense. I mean, baby boomers tend to have a lot more assets than the under 50s and are far more likely to own a home. So for them to pay it rather than it be added to everyone's tax probably seems appropriate. But Green suggests it should be made a national issue, not a council issue, which is only the case because of cuts to council funding. Targeting extra national insurance for all over 50s and supplementing your own care costs would also target anyone who's older and can't afford it, leading to an even larger rise in pensioner poverty, which has been increasing for the last two years for the first time since 2010. And making old people poor is the top level of cruel, because not only are they vulnerable, but also all their stories of how bad things used to be become a lot less relevant, which is a good percentage of their chat, based on my nan. These sorts of cuts are also leading to a rise in loneliness, which the government appointed a minister for to investigate why it was happening in the sort of amateur distraction technique that would be worth all of two minutes on a Darren Brown special. I mean, the government may as well just shout, look over there, every time they're asked about it before scarpering out the door. But something has to be done, as it's a major crisis. The government insists it's allocated £2 billion extra to social care every year, a promise from its 2017 budget, but this is now taken out of the NHS budget, which is self-defeating, as social care is already having to support patients that the NHS doesn't have beds for or care for anymore. Less NHS money means more pressure on social care, which means social care needs more money, and Green's plans at best would raise an extra £2 billion, which sounds great, except the costs keep rising, and the gap is set to be £3.5 billion by 2025, so it's still not enough. What other solution is there? Well, an anti-aging serum would be really handy. Uh, super soldier serum, something like that. Though I bet it would be expensive and probably not available on the NHS. So it really comes down to a rise in council funding. Or more Highlanders. OK, OK, more funding. The government has delayed several times now their green paper for a long-term social care funding plan that was originally overseen by Damien Green as DWP secretary till he was sacked for having porn on his work computer. I'm starting to wonder if his preferred type was watching pensioners get fucked. And now, back to Sean. Oh, it's so horrible. I mean, do you feel now, you know, in the States, uh, in, the, in the last sort of um, uh, set of elections that we saw, the, there was a rise in female politicians. Obviously, we've got people like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, mm. who's a very strong voice, um, you know, uh, for the Democrats, and obviously Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Um, do, does that sort of show that we're on the brink of a positive change, maybe a sort of retaliation to, to what's gone before and and I mean we've already you know it's the beginnings of more positive female representation in the US so this, this must be a good sign yeah when I'm optimistic I think it's amazing and I mean I love I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has just been so brilliant and so uncompromising in her feminism in her environmental activism in her refusal to kind of countenance that that capitalism is the way forward for everybody um, I think I mean, it was so, in some ways it was so shocking, the Congress elections, because you were like, because there were things like the first woman, first nation congresswoman or congressperson. Like, what? <laughs> like, in 2018, you still haven't had a first nation woman in Congress. Like, but I'm obviously amazing that she is now there. And, you know, lesbian women and Muslim women and lots more uh, black and minority ethnic women. So it was really great to see that change. And it's, it's actually a trend that we're seeing around the world. So in, I interviewed an activist in Poland last year and she was running for mayor in her community. And she was saying that, you know, you're just seeing far, many, many, many more women standing up um, in politics in Poland because you've got this kind of right-wing anti-abortion, anti-LGBT government in place. So you're, I think you do get this kind of, we're living through this back, backlash against feminism and backlash against um you know, women's equality and and other forms of equality. And then you have the backlash against the backlash, which I think we see with, with more women standing, 
more women speaking up. Um, and and that is going to change things because it there's I mean there's all sorts of theories about different kinds of representation and I can never remember the other word one of them substantive representation and then there's another type of representation and having more women in the room you know you don't have to be feminist to to put forward pro women policies and having more women in the room just means that issues that affect women get considered more so like in '97 when you you had the massive upsurge in women MPs and it went, I mean, it increased by, I think, 50%. Um, there weren't enough toilets. That was that was a big issue in 97. There were too many women. <laughs> um, and even though a lot of those women MPs didn't necessarily identify as feminists, like more women-friendly policies suddenly became normalised. And, and in places like transport, you know, you suddenly started to see policies that helped women negotiate public transport as opposed to transport just being about roads. So you can see like having women in the room makes a massive difference. When I'm feeling pessimistic, which, you know, sometimes it's hard to stay optimistic all the time. I worry that because of what happened in 2016 and because of the upsurge in misogynistic support for Trump and the way the media treated Hillary Clinton and the fact that Trump is this kind of macho, crass, will say anything to anyone politician. I mean, I use the word politician loosely. I worry that the way to, that people will believe the way to tackle that is to put as kind of macho, you know, male democratic leader against him. And that having a woman would be seen as too risky because, because it didn't work last time. So I have that kind of fear a little bit. I think that would be completely the wrong decision. And I think that actually putting Trump against a woman, you know, isn't, is actually really challenging for him because he can't relate to women as human beings. But I worry that there'll be that sort of temptation to go, oh, let's just stick with what we know. And we know that like a kind of butch, macho white man will, will, will give as good as he gets. And, and I think that's, that's something to kind of be a bit wary of in terms of what happens with the Democratic nominations. Yeah, I suppose it comes down to, because I know sort of obviously Joe Biden's announced that he's running and he's also had uh, sort of sexual harassment allegations against him. And yeah. um, Beta, oh, I can't remember his surname now, but, you know, he's, he's another one's kind of being tipped. But, yeah, it's... I, I I sort of feel like for America that doesn't give them. I mean, obviously those people are different to Trump in that then you know they can sort of uh, talk. They can a form a sentence. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> they can say hamburgers. Um, but, you know, it, but it still feels like it's the same. You know, still rich white man versus rich white man again, which doesn't yeah. represent a large portion of America. Um, I mean, what I wanted to ask is obviously sort of in the UK we're still very far behind on equal representation in the parties. I think the yeah. Conservatives have only got something like is it like 60, 60 something of their MPs are, are women out of their three hundred and thirteen MPs and Labour are better they're they're over uh, over hundreds I think they're hundred fifteen of theirs of their two hundred and forty something MPs are, are, are women so they're better but it's still that's still very low representation I mean do you think part of that you know something we've seen lately is a lot of um violent abuse both uh sort of online and with um you know the 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 yellow vest guys shouting Nazi Anna Subri and there's been a lot of abuse against female MPs and um case of mm. harassment in parliament is that putting that that must be putting women off doing it I mean I don't I don't know how they manage it I mean I 
I've had like a bit of abuse online and it just drives me crazy and it's only happens like every few weeks <laughs> like and then one one post will just send you spinning for ages I don't know how people can women deal with it when it's so constant um you know in the run-up to the 2017 election Amnesty International found out that Diane Abbott had received half of all of the abuse sent to all women MPs in fact maybe all MPs I need to check but um which is just you know that is just unbelievable that one woman would cop all of that abuse and that the press really kind of, I feel the mainstream media really kind of, you know, helped with that because they were constantly sort of riling people up against Diane Abbott. So in terms of representation, yeah, it's still pretty bad. I mean, it's obviously gotten better and since 97 it's it's gotten better. But I think um, I did a piece in the run-up to the 2017 election when when it looked like Labour were really going to do really badly and all the polls were like, it's going to be a massive Tory majority, Labour are going to be electorally wiped out and it was always kind of, you know, looked like a, a real nightmare, well, for me as a Labour supporter. Um, and it, when, when you looked at the predictions then, you actually saw women's representation going down for the first time in quite a few electoral cycles. So it's pretty much always gone up since 97. I think there was a small decrease in 2001. And it really showed me that, like, we assume that it's always going to be get better, that every election we're going to see more and more women return, that we're on this kind of upward trajectory in terms of representation. But actually, the reason it would have gone down with a massive Tory majority is because although Theresa May, you know, says positive things about getting women into Parliament, they don't have any policies that really fundamentally support increasing representation they don't have all women shortlists you know they don't take concrete proactive action to make sure that they return women MPs and and it really brought home to me that you have to do that you, if you if you're sincere about making sure parliament's representative then you have to use all women shortlists you have to use quotas otherwise it's just really easy for one party like the Tories to have a massive majority and you just see representation slip so that's one issue. The other thing about the abuse is, yeah, I mean, it's totally, I mean, I don't know how anyone would want to be a politician right now when you've, when you've got, like, yeah, men shouting that you're a Nazi into Anna Bree's face. Like, she couldn't go home because the death threats were so bad, the police told her she had to stay in London rather than go home. Um, I mean, I disagree with a lot of Anna Subri's political views but to, she's become such a kind of flashpoint for this abusive behavior in the same way Diane Abbott has I mean Diane Abbott as I said gets more abuse than any other MP and it's very much that intersection of racism and sexism in terms of Diane Abbott um, and I think we have to be really careful that we don't I think it's been allowed to go on too long. We've just become, we've become very accepting of online abuse. And I say that, as I say, as someone who gets it every now and again, you just, it's annoying and, but you just expect it to happen. You, you're not, it, it's become the norm for women in the public eye to get abuse. And when you go back to this, like the very, where we started this conversation with Greta Thunberg, it's, you know, this, this collective of men like writing nasty articles about a teenage girl they're doing it in their, their suits and ties they're doing it in their prestigious columns 
but it's all part of that spectrum that goes that then leads to a, a man in a yellow vest screaming in a politician's face because we're, 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 we're making it okay to bully and abuse women and girls in politics and I mean I spent some time recently looking at kind of Brexit Facebook groups and seeing what people are saying and and you do Burko comes in for targeting from the Brexit supporters so he gets quite a lot of abusive comments written about him but the majority of the people that they target are women and the, the level of language that's being used against women is, is much harsher than that being used against Burko. Wow, God, it's really it's so depressing. Um, and I think it was, it was fascinating the other week when um, there was the story about Diane Abbott drinking uh, a mojito on the cheese, mm. which was a, a completely non-story, but it was lovely to see the amount of support that she got from people saying, yes. Like, most popular she's ever yeah, been. It was, uh, <laughs> it was lovely to see that turn around. You know, for one the, the few times I've seen it uh, sort of turn in favour of her in, in a good way, you know, norm- normally it's something else for people to kind of jump off and abuse her about, but it was like, oh no, brilliant! Yeah. This is absolutely backfired. It was a, re- it was a nice sort of yeah, relief. it was really good. Mm. And like, you know, it just we 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 always complain that our politicians are not relatable, that they're you know really media trained, that they're full spin, and then someone a politician does something that's not being spun or that is relatable, and then people get into a right tiz about it. But as you say, I think in most cases when we see something like that happen, it's like, oh, yeah, good on Diane. Why not have a – I mean, I was drinking a tin of G&T on the train, I think, when that story broke. <laughs> 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 Excellent work. Excellent work. Um, yeah, I was going to say, the, the other thing I always find interesting is that the Conservatives have always sort of uh, – they always kind of go, well, our Prime Minister's a woman and Labour don't have a female leader. And then she sort of choose – you know, when last Cabinet reshuffle, she chose more people called Jeremy – than, than women uh, to, to be in it and and uh, you know a lot of May's policies have kind of proven to to make women worse off so it, it's not I mean that's not really an excuse is it to say well our leaders are women does that does that make a difference well first of all I think it's about time that Labour had a female leader I mean or at least I think it's I think one of the problems we see is that sort of left-leaning parties that promote equality I think they can come up, become a little bit lazy about it. Just like, oh, well, we do equality, so we don't need to have a female leader. I mean, obviously, it's a democratically elected leader, and he's won twice, and that's fine. But I do, it, it is a kind of a bit like, come on, when's, when are we going to get a female leader? So hopefully in the future that will change. But yeah, the Conservatives always just use the, like, oh, we can't be sexist because we've had two women PMs. And it's like, well, the way you treat the current female PM does have quite a lot of a... A lot of sexism in it like saying that you'd plunge a what was it a hot knife into her back like butter or God, yeah. you wanted to yep. chop her up and put her in a freezer I mean these are quite violently misogynistic statements coming from people within her own party be they sitting MPs or former MPs um, and I think you know Theresa May Theresa May has when she became Home Secretary in 2010 she stood up in front of the Women's Aid Conference and said that we needed actions, not words, on, on women's issues, and particularly on domestic violence. And all she's done is words, in my opinion. She, you know, she's introduced legislation to deal with violence against women, like the Forced Marriage Act and Claire's Law, um, which is, allows people to, or women to ask the police if their partner has any allegations or convictions of violence against women in, in the past. And 
I mean, you know, these are good things, but there's no money. There's no funding behind it. You can't criminalise forced marriage while closing down the specialist services that support women who are victims of forced marriage. You can't make it easier for women to access information about their partners who are abusive while at the same time cutting the police forces and destroying the safety net of refuges that women could then go to. It's all very well getting a woman to find out that her ex has got, or her current partner has got a violent history, but then where does she go if we've closed down all the refuges? So it's been a lot of words and not very much action. And that's before you even get on to how austerity on a wider scale has impacted on women's equality and her, her attitudes towards immigration and how that again has a really gendered impact. So I think it's very easy for them to say, oh, we've got a woman, so we must be doing something right. And like I said before, it is important to have women in the room. It is important to have increased representation of women because that does change things. But you can't just use it as a smokescreen when your policies are deliberately harming women's equality. So I wanted to ask you um, now, uh, I've got to put my hands up and say I haven't read Caroline Criado Perez's book and I blame that on having a one-year-old and I haven't read anything for a year. But I've read a lot of articles that she's written, a lot of excerpts of it. um, And it's been fascinating how many elements of society and design that she's highlighted were never made to fit or work for women. Um, You know, police uniforms that, you know, stab vests that never fit women properly and cars that have never been tested safe for women. And then NASA haven't been able to carry out their all-female spacewalk because of a lack of appropriate suits there's so many areas of everyday life that are suddenly now being highlighted as having been always sexist or at least ignorant of uh, uh, women you know whether it's sort of consciously sexist or or not but it obviously we've had we had a massive expose with the me too campaign um the other year uh this is now coming out what other kind of hidden sexist elements of society need to be exposed what are we missing and i'm sure that I mean, that's a big question i'm sure we could be here for hours um but i wonder if there's anything because I, I think it just absolutely shocked me that these are things that i hadn't even ever thought of before or you know realized yeah i mean it sounds silly but the thing that really got to me was realizing that there's a reason why i don't wear my safety belt correctly when i get in a car i adjust like i put it under my arm because that's more comfortable wow And it's like, oh, that's because I've got a woman's body (laughs) getting in the way of the safety belt. (laughs) So, I mean, I think for me, one of the things I really would like to see a lot more exposure of, and I mean, it's down to me, I'm a journalist, I should be doing it, um, is is just how gendered austerity has been. I don't think, there's been a bit, you know, there's been discussion about it. There's been reports about it. There's been findings that, you know, 80% of the cost of austerity came from women. But it hasn't become a scandal. And I think it should be a scandal. It's, it's one of the, to me, it's one of the biggest transfers of equality from one group to another, because we've decided that austerity, austerity was an ideological position. It was a choice that was made. And we've decided that that choice should be borne by women. And we've deliberately, as a, like, put, put, government has deliberately impoverished women and children on a really massive scale. And and I think we need to talk more about the gendered element of that and the impact that that has had. As I say, it's not necessarily hidden. It's probably hidden in plain sight because there is, is work being done on it. But I think we need to hear a lot more about it and a lot more about the impact that that has on other areas of women's equality. So, for example, you know, if austerity has caused women to be poorer 
then that makes it harder for them to leave an abusive partner, which then has an impact on their children. So, you know, there's a lot of long, long-term, big-scale issues that have been caused by this policy decision and that have been, that have really, really damaged women's access to equality in a way that I don't think we've really come to terms to yet. Do you, do you think it would change um, electoral outcomes if it was highlighted more, you know, if it was really highlighted that... that uh women associated discriminated against by this government, do you think that would change how women vote? I mean, women do tend to vote for Labour more than than they do for the Conservatives. And I think I wrote a piece again in 2017 about that and was like, well, is it really surprising if the government has taken away your equality and your rights? I don't know. I never quite... I don't understand what motivates people to vote for what they vote for. And I think there was a really good Gary Young article, actually, about the sort of Remainer, and I'm a, I mean, I'm, I'm a Remainer, but this Remainers always go, but why, why are they voting to make themselves poorer? And actually, like, actually, as a, a left-wing person, I vote to make myself poorer because I vote for higher taxes. Mm. So, you know, we, we vote for all sorts of different reasons that might not reflect our actual material reality or the way that politics are actually impacting on our lives. So, but I do think, you know, I think we've, we, I mean, even just watching political TV, there's still this tendency to just think like, oh, austerity just had to happen. It just had to happen. Um, and we all, you know, we all did our bit and we all sacrificed something. And it's not true. It didn't have to happen. And we didn't all do our bit. Very vulnerable women did a lot. And, and we need to, we need to recognise that and we need to be angrier about it. Um, and one last question. Uh, it just is, uh, apart from yourself, obviously, and all the places where you write. Um, and I was very pleased that yeah. by following you on Twitter, I found out about New Mavens. I've never, uh, never didn't know of that site until, uh, so it must be several months ago, which is fantastic. Um, but it, what other writers, publications, campaigns, websites um, would you recommend that listeners check out kind of in regards to contemporary feminism or any subjects, really? Where, where do you go to? What do you enjoy reading? So one of the women who I think is doing like the best or among the best work on gender and women's rights in terms of writing and telling stories and bringing, shining a light on the issues that women encounter around the world is Mega Mohan, who's at the BBC. I mean, her writing recently on LGBT issues and she did this incredible piece about how women in communities where homosexuality is illegal manage to communicate with each other and form their own communities. So to get a sense of what is happening for women around the world then Mega, Mega Mohan is, is definitely someone to check out. Um, I think I'm quite conservative with my reading. I just, I always read The New Statesman. I always read um, Open Democracy and Open Democracy 5050. Um, I'm trying to think. I think Rhiannon Lucy Costler, again, is a writer that I really, really rate. I think she's, she's very, very sharp on feminism, but she's also really good on issues around housing and disability. And Francis Ryan, again, a really leading voice on disability activism. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's just like really lots of very brilliant. I'm going to say young because they're a bit younger than me, but also my age. Um, we are young. We are young in our 30s. Um, writers who are really paying a lot of attention to what's to the stories that went, aren't being told and aren't being heard. And I think those three are really exemplary in doing that. And, you know, Natalie Bloomer as well, who is her work on the hostile environment and the impact that 
the Home Office immigration reforms have had on really vulnerable people is just, I mean, I think that's, to me, some of the stuff she uncovered last year should have been the news that defined the year in many ways. So, yeah, I always really follow her work and admire what she does. Thanks so much to Sean for that chat. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Sharnushka. That's S-I-A-N-U-S-H-K-A. Um, and obviously links to that are in the pod blurb too. And links to articles and other writing she does can be found at shantherwriter.wordpress.com. But she has three articles out this week, two at Open Democracy and one at the New Statesman, so check those out ASAP. Um, I've currently got guests lined up for podcasts in the future, but no one for next week or the week after, so I need your suggestions for who to chat to and what to chat about, but not how to chat to them. As in, like, I'm not keen to start doing this in the style of film noir or a western so you can keep those improv suggestions to yourself right okay i know you meant to say yes to everything but no to that um if you do want to tell me of some handy talky types with political know-how of the campaign uh issue amazing tales or other worthwhile content for this here show then you can do that on at Bro on twitter the partly political broadcast facebook group the contact page on partly political broadcast.co.uk or email me at partly political broadcast at gmail.com or you could scream it into the prevailing winds hoping your voice will carry across land and maybe even sea traveling a momentum journey inexplicable by scientific terms and blown straight into my lug holes as I begrudgingly put out the bins to which I'll slightly freak out and run back indoors before writing about it on nextdoor.com and warn all the neighbours about the local weirdo who shouts at you when you're trying to wheel out the dry recycling. As always it's probably just best to email isn't it? That's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you again for listening. Um, I mean, obviously, if you didn't, then I could tell my family that I was working on the podcast every Monday, but instead have a sleep upstairs. But, you know, I totally wouldn't want to do that ever, ever. I mean, just think about it, listeners, yeah? If you all just stopped, then every Monday I could pretend I'm still and then just have a little little snip and just catch up. I haven't slept for like a year. Sorry, I mean... I would never want you to eschew this show for illegal sleep activities. <clears throat> and of course, if you do want to keep this show honest, or at least lying but with style, then donate if you can to the Kofi or Patreon accounts. Review the show on all your pod apps. Yeah, all of them, even the ones you hide from the kids. And do spread the word like it's your new jam. You see, that works on two levels, doesn't it? Jam, it's like, I know, sometimes I got all the clevers. Thanking Big Sum to Acast for snuggling this show in its noisy arms. To my brother, Last Skeptic, for providing all the tunes, but not for seeing Avengers Endgame a whole three days before me. The total bastard. And to Cat Day for linear liner notes and not seeing Avengers at all, making her the true hero. This show will be back next week, possibly with a guest, possibly not, but either way, I'll be looking at further Brexit party candidates, including the ghost of Enoch Powell, a crow with a knife, Pat Sharp, and a sleeping old man with a bag on his head that they've drawn a sad face on. While Change UK announced that both Phil Spencer and Kirsty also have joined, as has an underused Nutribullet. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Damien Green's DIY Stairlifts. Have trouble getting up the stairs? Can't quite manage them like you used to? With Damien's DIY Stairs, we'll throw a very heavy chair in your porch and you can either wave £200 at us to lift it up and own your flights a few times or you have to go and do it yourself because it's your own fault you're still alive. Why won't you die? Why won't you die? Why? Damien Green's DIY Stairlifts because you refuse to make the great ascent. Hey, marketers, advertisers, and business owners. Find yourself chatting up the same audience in the same places, using the same old lines? Maybe it's time to podcast the net further to catch your next customer. With Acast, there's plenty of fish in the sea with more than 100,000 podcasts and millions of listeners. So there's a perfect match for every business. 
use our ad platform to cast your net, then narrow down using targeting such as demographic, show categories, audience segments, and more. Find your match, then reel them in. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcasts with ACAST. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.